Hi, and welcome to 241, where we talk about two movies with the same source material. I'm Claire. And I'm David. Today we're going to be talking about Ocean's Eleven, both the 2001 version and the original 1960 version. So in this case, our source material today is the 1960 movie itself, and we're going to hold it up against the 2001 version in order to see similarities, differences, merits, and faults. So... David, why don't you get us started with the summaries of both plots, because they actually are a little bit different. Sure, yeah, unlike some of the other movies that we looked at, these are, I would say, pretty significant, significantly different. Um, so Ocean's Eleven, uh, the original movie, came out in 1960, and it was directed by Lewis Milestone uh, and stars members of the Rat Pack. Um, but the gist is that the main character... Danny Ocean and his wartime buddies are going in on a heist together, and their plan is to rob five different Las Vegas casinos. So, the first half of the movie shows, you know, Danny going around to different parts of the United States, recruiting everybody, some of whom he hasn't seen since the war, um, and some of them he's been in touch with, and they're still good friends. And the second half of the movie basically just shows how they end up doing it. Um, and uh, takes place in Las Vegas at the casinos and the surrounding environment. The remake, which came out in 2001, was directed by Steven Soderbergh, and it is essentially the same in that Danny Ocean leads a group of 11 people in a robbery of three Las Vegas casinos, but they're not war friends, uh, some of them don't even know each other, and there's actually somewhat of an ulterior motive for Danny to want to rob these casinos. And not everybody knows about his motives, he kind of keeps it a secret from the rest of the crew, but there is a villain, there's more of a plot arc, there's, I think, probably better development of the, the minor members of the crew. We, we see the recruitment of everybody in the team, and eventually we do see the heist itself in the second half of the movie. So, before we go into more of those differences and our thoughts on them, uh, just a quick rundown of who's in these movies, and some shout-outs to the actors who we thought particularly stood out. So, The Ocean's Eleven from 1960, as David said, includes some members of the famous Rat Pack, those being Frank Sinatra as Danny Ocean himself, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Peter Lawford. They are four members of the group of 11. The other group members are Richard Conte, Joey Bishop, Henry Silva, Buddy Lester, Richard Benedict, Norman Fell, and Clem Harvey. There are some other notable characters, in particular Angie Dickinson, who is the love interest for Danny Ocean. Uh, Akeem Tamaroff is Spiros, who is the person who sort of had the idea for the heist and got everyone got Danny Ocean to get everybody together, um, although he did not participate in the heist itself. And then we have Cesar Romero, who is playing the soon-to-be stepfather of one of the Eleven, and he sort of ends up meddling in their plans after they've pulled the heist off. Mm -hmm. Anybody from that list that you want to comment on before we go further? Well, I thought that the Rat Pack themselves, I think, like, they had good charisma, they had uh, pretty mm -hmm. good on-screen on presence. Pretty much all the members of the Eleven 
were pretty interchangeable for me, but, you know, they were all good. I really liked Cesar Romero as the stepfather and his soon-to-be stepson. I thought they had very good chemistry. Who was it that was playing his stepson? Uh, Peter Lawford. Peter Lawford. Yeah, I thought they were very good in their one scene uh, yeah. together. They had that sort of back and forth that worked really well. And then Cesar Romero, as you said, yeah, all his scenes, he's clearly... Yeah. A presence. And along the same lines, I think Angie Dickinson, she kind of had mm-hmm. one big scene where she goes up against Dean Martin and then goes right. up against Frank Sinatra, who's playing her, I guess, ex-husband, estranged husband. Yeah, estranged husband. I think that's probably the, the right word. But they, they have, you know, she kind of holds her own against these two guys. And in like the 10 minutes that she's on screen, I thought, yeah, she was she was really good. Yeah, in a movie that I didn't think really had anyone really jumping out at me, I would agree that that Cesar Romero and Angie Dickinson were both great. Not members of the Eleven. Yeah, but for not being crucial to the story. That's I wish that we'd had more of of sort of their energy throughout the movie, and I would also agree with the Rat Pack themselves. As David said, the members of the Eleven in this movie they don't really have specialties or reasons to really distinguish one from the other, but. There's a moment when they've all come together, and it's just those four members of the Rat Pack standing around a pool table, and that sort of scene seemed a lot more comfortable and natural to the rest of the group being together, at least to me. Mm-hmm. It seemed very clear that these are four guys who are comfortable in each other's presence, used to just sort of palling around and everything. It seemed pretty real. Yeah, and I got the impression from reading up about the production of this movie that they weren't very inclined to use scripts or to memorize lines or anything like that. <laughs> okay, I believe that. that they were, they, at, at times they were using cue cards, and it seemed like they were just pretty casually hanging out with each other uh, for, for most of this movie, and that the studio saw it <laughs> more as a, a promotional vehicle for the Rat Pack themselves than, wow. than something that should be taken seriously as a movie. I mean, we'll get to the merits or demerits of the movie later, but uh, yeah, I think their on-screen chemistry, that's kind of where it came from, because mm-hmm. they were just they were just hanging out on set, you know, and that's, that's kind of how they saw this, this whole enterprise. So going over to the 2001 version, there's just some great acting talent in this movie. You've got the Danny Ocean in 2001, played by George Clooney, In this case, he's got his sort of right-hand man, who is played by Brad Pitt. So you've sort of got them as the two central members of the Eleven. The remaining members of the group, played by Bernie Mac, Elliot Gould, Casey Affleck, Scott Kahn, Eddie Jemison, Don Cheadle, Xiaobo Chin, Carl Rayner, and Matt Damon. Other key characters in that movie are played by Julia Roberts. In this case, she is Danny Ocean's love interest. And then you've got Andy Garcia, because as David mentioned, the 2001 version actually introduces a villain for the crew to be up against, and Andy Garcia plays mm-hmm. Terry Benedict, who is the owner of all three of the casinos that they are planning on robbing, and he is also the current paramour of Julia Roberts, and therefore has earned George Clooney's ire. Yeah, and obviously unifying the A and the B plots in this movie in a way that that gives them motivation to actually pull this off, I think is probably the biggest innovation here, uh, as well as, you know, having characters with different specialties instead of just interchangeable members of the Rat Pack and their associates. I think those are are probably the biggest changes. Yeah. Um, If we were to start giving shout-outs to the crew, I feel like we would just 
end up making the whole podcast about that because they each own their character and their character's sort of position within the Eleven, how they play a role towards making the heist successful. Um, I think Brad Pitt certainly stands out for me. He's sort of infamous now for just eating yeah. in every scene, but I, he's got this this funny presence that he brings to it while still making it sort of a cool heist movie. Yeah, I mean, he's one of my, he's like one of my favorite movie stars of, you know, I guess even the current era, but certainly the last few decades. Uh, George Clooney is great, right? I mm -hmm. mean, he's got he's to gotta have the charisma as Danny Ocean. I think in the 1960 version, they're always talking about Danny, like even when he's not on screen, they're talking about him like he's this you know, great leader, this charismatic guy. And I guess, like, if you are familiar with Sinatra, you see him that way. But, you know, they needed somebody like that, and I think George Clooney... Yeah, he fit the bill. Really fits. Perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I also love Matt Damon, and we were talking about uh, some of his moments. He's sort of, like, the runt of the crew. Yeah. He's the last person recruited. There's, like, there's one particular line where he tries to say something cool. Smash and grab job, huh? Slightly more complicated than that. Oh, yeah. It's just so mean. Just like, just yeah, just like down. shuts him down when he was just trying to be cool. And Matt Damon's like, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, yeah, he's sort of, um, I mean, it's a comedy and they're all funny, but he's sort of uh, like they play off against him. Like he's almost a straight man or like, mm -hmm. like in, in a way, like the comic relief, but also the straight man that like is kind of the butt of everybody's jokes all the time. Yeah. Uh, I mean, everybody's good. I Yeah, I would say the more you watch it, the more people stand out. I remember Don Cheadle being just the funniest person to me the first time I watched it, but now Elliot Gould, I just <laughs> I love his, you're yeah. out of your goddamn mind. Yeah, like, Elliot sort of. Gould is really hamming it up and, and having a good time, I think. Yeah. Well, the motion picture teleplay was uh, respectful and exhibited tastefulness and class. Who made you an expert all of a sudden? Actually, I think this, this does bring us into one of the first topics I know you wanted to get into, which is who are the most interesting characters in each. I had one comment on that um, from watching both of them. Both movies present us with a character who has just been released from prison, and I think that sets up so much backstory and sort of like interest and intrigue around like who is this character, what have they done, you know. And it's interesting in the 2001 version, that character is George Clooney, you know, the Danny Ocean. And so right from the get-go, you're just like, ooh, he's like, maybe a little bad, but like, what's he into? In the 1960 version, it's given to someone who is like very far down the totem pole in terms of uh, his importance. Yeah. So he's, he's actually, he's one of the only members of the crew with a specialty. He's the electrician. Like, everyone else just sort of exists, since they're all just army buddies. It's not like they were recruited. I would say uh, this character, who's played by Richard Conte and Sammy Davis Jr., are the only two who have a special purpose to the And what's heist. Sammy Davis Jr.'s specialty? He driving? can drive a garbage he truck. He can drive a garbage <laughs> truck. So, like, yeah, everybody else is just sort of like, all right, anybody want to infiltrate, like, this casino? Yeah. And then someone's like, yeah, I'll do it. And, like, that's all. Yeah, they get, like, basically. two guys per casino, basically. So, anyhow, that's just one thing that I noted in terms of creating an interesting character. I was really ready to be interested in Richard Conte's character, Tony Bergdorf, um, mm -hmm. who does end up actually dying 
at the end of the movie. And so I was just like, oh, because you saw him interact with his son. They gave him so much character backstory yeah. that I think should have been given to Danny Ocean. And I was happy to see in the 2001 version, you know, at least that whole part of being released from prison is given to Danny Ocean. Yeah, like you really get more backstory for him than anybody. And then second most is uh, the guy who his he like goes to his mom's house to get money. Yeah, this guy and, does not need to be robbing five casinos. And, but and as he's his mom is rich, and as he goes, he finds out that she's engaged, and then his, Cesar Romero is soon to be his uh, his stepfather. And then, like, third most is Danny Ocean. But, like, you kind of get his backstory, but you still don't get any motivation for why he's doing yeah. this. The only the only person I think you really get motivation for is, uh, uh, who, what's his name? Richard Conte? The guy who... Right. So he's been released from prison, gets to go and see his son, and then the next thing that you see is he's at the doctor's office. Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing because he has this great line where he goes, give it to me straight, Doc. Is it the big casino? Yeah. <laughs> but but it is. And so he's realized, yeah. okay, like, I've got nothing to lose. If I pull off this heist, I can give the money to my, like, the money can be given to my son right. for college. So that causes him to change his mind about whether he was going to participate. But you're um, right. No other motivation for joining the heist. Yeah. No other character, really has a reason. And I think they kind of addressed that in the 2001 version. Where, right, with when, the scene. When um, Rusty mm-hmm. asks Danny, Brad Pitt's character asks uh, George Clooney's character, like, why do this? And he's just like, why not do it? What? I need a reason. <sighs> I don't say money. Why do this? Why not do it? Because yesterday I walked out of the joint after losing four years of my life and your cold decking teen beat cover boys. Because the house always wins. Play long enough, you never change the stakes, the house takes you. Unless, when that perfect hand comes along, you bet big and then you take the house. Been practicing this speech, haven't you? A little bit, did I rush it? Felt like I rushed it. No, it's good, I liked it. Teen beat thing was harsh. And then he gives a whole bullshit speech that is also meaningless. And then later you find out, like, what the real motivation is. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, like, even in the 1960 version of this movie, they sort of have that conversation. They're all, you know, they're finally all gathered together about halfway through the movie. They've all agreed to participate. And I think someone is like, why are we doing this? Yeah. And there's basically no answer. You yeah, know. and eventually when everybody else is like, we'll go through with it anyhow, the guy's like, all right, then I'm in. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, it was silly. I did say to David as we were watching it, that scene with Brad Pitt and George Clooney, why, like, tell me why we're doing this and don't say it's for the money. I was like, yeah, that they're talking to the makers of the 1960 movie of like, please, I, make a better movie. Tell me why we're doing this and make it more than the money. And the 2001 version does make it more than the money you know you've got a villain you've got a love interest it's still like maybe not necessary that they rob millions of dollars from these casinos but you're more along for the ride i would say and you're rooting for them because you get to know terry benedict the man that that they're essentially robbing he you know andy garcia i think does a great job of of playing that role yeah um well let's talk about the love interests actually since we're sort of around that point 
Uh, we did mention Angie Dickinson has a great presence on the screen. She actually has a cameo in the 2001 version as well. Um, but she's sitting down with Danny Ocean in the 1960 version. I honestly think you're serious. Well, of course I'm serious. A week's trip to Rio. Yes. <laughs> oh, Danny, what a prize you are. The only husband in the world who'd proposition his own wife. Well, I married you once and it didn't work out too well, so what's wrong with a little hey-hey? Nothing. Nothing at all. I'd never knock it as long as there was a little love involved. hes They're both sort of making it clear that they want each other, but neither of them are willing to change for well, each other. Well, she also, when she was talking to Dean Martin a minute before, she was like... I'll consider mistress, plaything, toy for a night, but I refuse to be your mother. That's out. So, like, she was clearly down to fuck Dean Martin, too. <laughs> but, like, yeah, I think she's still interested in Sinatra. Yeah, but... It, as much as the sort of the, the tension was there and everything, and she made it clear that she's still in love with him, I was left pretty confused as to the state of their relationship. There's, a, there's one other scene way later. It's Angie Dick Dickinson's last scene where another woman who has been having, you know, a, an affair or a one-night stand, I'm not sure, with, uh, with Danny Ocean actually calls... Angie Dickinson's character in order to sort of be like, ooh, you should know what your man's up to. And Angie Dickinson just shuts her down of like, knowing that he's got women like you in his life just makes me love him more, which I gotta say, doesn't make sense to me, but, you know. Yeah, and also, that's the last time we see her. Yeah, and you never get of, any resolution. That's sort of like mid-heist, right? Yeah. Because she calls from the casino when she, like, runs into them or something. Right, when I don't they're even still know why doing, like, recon stuff. Yeah, and uh, then she calls Mrs. Ocean, or the former Mrs. Ocean, and that's the last that we really see of them. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, no resolution to that B-plot. I don't even think it's, like, really, a, it's, like, the C or the D-plot, you know? There's so much more time given to the other subplots. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's very interesting that it exists at all. Yeah. Um, and then they did make it a much bigger part of the 2001 version. You have the estranged wife, Tess Ocean, in this case, played by Julia Roberts. And, you know, I think she's still mostly just a vehicle for us to hate Terry Benedict more because, you know, he's got the girl and, and Danny Ocean is in love with her and knows that, you know, she must still love him deep down. I'm not totally convinced why Tess would end up back with Danny Ocean at the end. Um, basically what you get is you get this scene where there's a hotel camera in the hallway, and so Julia Roberts... At the very end of the movie. At the very end, yes. After the heist, Terry Benedict's lost his money, but he can't pin it on George Clooney, right? And so there's a hotel hallway camera watching the two of them, and Julia Roberts is watching this from her hotel bedroom. And... Danny Ocean asks Terry Benedict, if I could find your guy, would you give up Tess? And Terry Benedict says, yes. It makes sense to me that Julia Roberts would, Julia Roberts' character, Tess Ocean, would leave Terry Benedict over that yes, over him saying yes. But I don't know exactly why it drives her back into Danny Ocean's arms, except for the fact that the audience wants it to happen. So I'm certainly not complaining. I'm just saying it's still not the most perfectly you know, developed love story ever. Yeah, I think, like, they they have an earlier scene together 
um, in a restaurant at, uh, you know, sort of when, when George Clooney first shows up in Las Vegas. And he walks in on Julia Roberts, who's waiting for Andy Garcia. And they just have this classic, like, movie star, mm-hmm. you know, old Hollywood kind of thing. And seeing George Clooney and Julia Roberts, who sort of, like, you know, we don't have necessarily the same, like, idea of what a movie star is as maybe they did in the 50s or the 60s. But, like, if, if it's anybody in the 90s and the 2000s, like, those two are it. When I get on with my life, I want you with me. You're a thief and a liar. I only lied about being a thief. I don't do that anymore. Steal. Lie. I'm with someone now who doesn't have to make that kind of distinction. No, he's very clear on both. You know what your problem is? I only have one. You've met too many people like you. I'm with Terry now. Does he make you laugh? He doesn't make me cry. It seems like they're having fun on set. I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Like, you know, we, we were talking about it for the 1960 movie, but same thing for the 2001 movie. It seems like everybody's pretty much enjoying themselves doing mm-hmm. doing this movie. Yeah. And that, that makes it a lot more fun. And that just it just goes down so easily, you know, that, like, yeah, we can pick it apart and be like, why did Julia Roberts want to actually get with George Clooney at the end? But, like, I've seen this movie, like, 12 times at least, and... <laughs> You would never, like, that would never occur to you because it's just, like, such a ride, you know? Yeah, exactly. But the chemistry's there, so you want it to happen. Did you think that that Angie Dickinson... I mean, so we both obviously have seen the 2001 version many times and just watched the 1960 version for the first time, but did you think Angie Dickinson looked a lot like Julia Roberts? I feel like I know what you mean by that question, where they have this, like, magnetic, you know, personality, but, I mean, oh. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say that they look too Oh, I similar. felt like they looked alike, and I was wondering if, like, part of the reason they cast Julia Roberts was... I mean, maybe it was, like, their, like, costume and makeup. They consciously did it oh. in a way that, that made her look like that. But maybe I, was I wondering... look up a picture of her now and just look more closely yeah. at it, side by side. But I thought, um, you know, I... I think they were both, they were both good, and, you know, mm-hmm. you're right that it, it makes a lot more sense, I think, uh, to have, to have that love story at the forefront of the movie, rather than... At least intertwined with, you know, why they're robbing the casino. Right, rather yeah. than just sort of a dead end, like it is in 1960. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I mean, that's the only romantic relationship in the movie, right? Maybe um... the only woman in the movie? Oh, yeah, neither of these movies are passing the Bechdel test, that is for well, sure. Oh, uh, yeah. The 1960, yeah. let's talk a little bit more about the 1960 version, um, and one key difference comes from both Cesar Romero's character and the ending of that movie. So, David, do you want to explain sort of what what yeah. Cesar Romero's doing? So they, they do the heist, They their plan is to pull off this heist at five casinos on New Year's Eve. While everybody's singing uh, "Old Lang, Lang Syne. Um which I don't—it's very silly. He says like, "Oh, it takes exactly one one minute and thirty-eight seconds." Yeah, to like sing. people are never inconsistent with. But then it even shows the casinos like as they're singing it, and they're singing at different tempos. 
<laughs> and so it's like that doesn't make sense. But anyway, that's the plan. That at at one minute thirty eight seconds past midnight, they're gonna blow uh, the power to all of Vegas, which will give them enough time to break into. Uh, I, I guess really just the back room of the casino. It's yeah. not like heavy vaults or anything. Sort of like yeah, they each have like a vestibule or like a counter that they're just mm-hmm. breaking into, stealing the money in the dark, while. You know, nobody can see anything. The security guards, they're being held up. It's really just, like, a very quick thing. So they get away with it. They throw the money in the garbage. It gets to Sammy Davis Jr., who takes it out to the dump somewhere. And then they're going to, I guess, lay low for a minute and then pick it up whenever. Uh, The next day, the casino owners get together and they decide, we're going to hire Cesar Romero, who, it turns out, is, like, kind of a gangster or like a has-been gangster and he's still connected to that world and they hire him and he just happens to be in Vegas mm-hmm. uh, just inexplicably. He says they shouldn't have pulled this heist while I was in Vegas. <laughs> yeah. And he's actually wondering why his uh, his future stepson is there. He's mm-hmm. like, oh, he said he was going skiing but now he's in Vegas. So he's already wondering. That's suspicious. And he says, I'll fix this. I'll, I'll find out who did it. It's sort of like they echo that later in the in the remake when Danny Ocean's like I'm yes. gonna find out who did this for you know I love that um, so Cesar Romero he doesn't do a whole lot of investigation before he realizes that this is the crew that did it he's yeah. like oh all these war buddies are in Vegas and yeah like, the 82nd Airborne hold up a second <laughs> yeah yeah they were all in the 82nd Airborne and I guess like someone had mentioned that earlier in the movie to him so he he puts two and two together and figures out that they did it and he decides he's going to blackmail them. Oh, you know what it is? It's because the Bergdorf character dies, and they're like this famous war person died on the street in Las Vegas. So that's that's right. the clue that cracks it open for him. So he puts it together. Right. Um, but, yeah, and he, so the movie kind of, it's winding down. He says, I'll take 50% not to turn you guys in, and they kind of have to cave to that. But their big plan to get the money out is to use the funeral of their comrade who had died um, and yeah. stuff the money into his coffin. And then at the end of the movie, they don't realize that it's he. it was actually a cremation. <laughs> so they watch all the money burn up uh, and then just leave and kind of like sulk on the way out over, as the credits roll. It is so funny because... You know, they're trying to... They're still trying to evade Cesar Romero. He's confronted them. He's demanded 50%. And I guess they've figured if they can hide the money cleverly enough for long enough, then Cesar Romero won't be able to, you know, actually implicate them. But they do take $10,000 out beforehand to give to his son. Which I was actually concerned by, because if the whole reason Bergdorf did it was to give his full cut to his son, I hope they're still they were still planning on giving the rest of his cut to Bergdorf's son. But, you know, that's just me and my overthinking <laughs> the characters in this fake movie. I think it was like, it, I wonder if it was like at the last minute they were like, wow, we really screwed the son over in this movie. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to have a scene where Sammy Davis Jr. is like, he's like, hey, uh, here's $10,000. Oh, you know what it is, though? When he takes the $10,000, the band falls off. And that's when the funeral director calls Cesar Romero right, to be like, right. oh, I found this weird thing, but I didn't bother to open the coffin to check if there was you know, So you're saying if he hadn't taken the money... Then Cesar Romero never would have showed up at the funeral. So they would have gotten all the money 
Well, it still would have been cremated, but you wouldn't have that hilarious final scene when Cesar Romero, he walks in, he's like, ooh, I got them, because he sees all 11 of them sitting on a pew at this funeral, and he... He's sort of already figured out since the the $10,000 money band, just the paper band, was lying next to the coffin. He's put two and two together to figure the money must be in the coffin. He sidles up in the pew behind these 11 guys, and then someone goes, oh, what's that sound? And someone goes, oh, yeah, you didn't know it was getting the, the bodies being cremated. And then you see Cesar Romero react, and then... Frank Sinatra yeah. turned to the guy next to him, one who turns to one. the guy next to him, who turns to the guy next to him. I mean, it is great comedy in the end of the movie, but honestly, oh, it is way too long of a setup to get to that punchline. I mean, yeah, no, well, well, just to wrap up on Cesar Romero, I think like he sort of becomes the villain at the end of the movie. But like, oh, well, I was rooting for him, but only because I could not stand Frank Sinatra. Well, yeah, he's got like so much more. He's got a lot of charisma in this movie, you know, and he's like he's a huge guy. I mean, it looked like big guy, yeah. Uh, so he he like really has a presence. Um, and in the last few scenes of the movie, he is you know hunting them down and sort of becomes becomes that role, even though they hadn't explicitly set it up that way. And I think he's great in the role. But I also agree with you that like, you know, the end of the movie, it is it almost like redeems the movie. Cause yes. like I've caught myself just giggling when I think about it. I was I, I was like I thought this movie you know we watched it and I think afterward we were like was this movie like well liked at the time, <laughs> and it turned out that like not like critics did not love this movie and I think they they identified like the lack of motivation and and uh, the lack of like you you just don't really have a reason to like these people. Yeah, they are awful. And then to see them, like, devastated because they fucked up at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it sucks because the one guy who was doing it for the right reasons is ended up dead because of them. Mm-hmm. But, like, then to see them, like, all walk away dejected uh, and, like, they don't get any consolation prize. Yeah. He doesn't end up with Tess or, I guess she's, what is she, Beatrice? Beatrice, yeah. He doesn't end up with Beatrice in this movie. It almost makes it all worth it, you know? It's yeah. like Rocky losing the fight at the end of the movie or something Ooh, like spoilers. that. Spoilers. Well, I don't know. <laughs> it almost makes the movie worth it, but it is not. It's just not a good movie. And I gotta say, especially Frank Sinatra's Danny Ocean, it's so interesting hearing you share that they weren't interested in, like, learning a script because he seems so absent from the movie. And, yeah, I'm not... I'm not of that era. Like, I've heard of the Rat Pack. I've heard of Frank Sinatra. I did not expect him to look the way he looked, honestly. Um, him or Dean Martin. Yeah, I mean, it's like, I, I associate them with the 60s, and this is 1960, but they still all looked old as time, right? And that's kind they're of like smoking, a... smoking, like, constantly, yeah. so... <laughs> I'm 25, you know? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like, they, they, they looked, like, pretty deep into middle age, some of them, mm-hmm. um... And they kind of talk about it, you know, they're supposed to be, like, old war buddies, so you figure they were 20 during the war, and that this is 15 years later, so they're probably mid-30s, you know, maybe 40, uh, and that's sort of, that's like a running theme through the movie is, mm-hmm. you know, that they're, they're aging and they're past their youth, and the risks that they took as kids, like, is this, 
another risk that they're going to get away with or is this like a risk that they don't have to take you know um but yeah i mean that doesn't really make me like any of them a lot i don't know i didn't think that they were all that likable you know they they, you know they had charisma in their own way Mm -hmm. but not a lot behind it yeah exactly they're not offering anything to like but i am trying to imagine putting myself in the perspective of someone who loves the Rat Pack? And then in that case, what does this movie offer? I gotta say, I'm still pretty hazy on what the Rat Pack is. It's just a bunch of guys who partied at the same house. I don't know. That's how they got their name, the Rat Pack? They weren't ever a band or anything? I don't know. I think they, they, they sang similar kinds of music, and I guess they were probably on the same record label and you know oh, hung okay. out in the same circles. I don't know. That's all speculation, you know? But if, you, if you're really into this group of people, uh, then, yeah, I could see that there would be things you would like. I mean, Sammy Davis Jr. sings a great theme song for the movie called EO11, which, you know, goes on for a really long time. <laughs> but he sings, Dean Martin sings, like, three different numbers throughout the film. Um, Frank Sinatra never sings on screen, but... If you care about the Rat Pack and you want to see them on screen, you know, maybe that's what you're looking for, just those those moments when they're singing and sort of doing their thing. There's also a bit of 1960s style, which I appreciate. I feel like I've seen it parodied a lot, so it's fun to see people actually talking in that manner. I know I mentioned earlier I love Conte's delivery of, give it to me straight, Doc, but there's also a great scene where um, they're getting off the elevator and Angie Dickinson just walks right by Danny Ocean and... There's sort of some some funny lines there, so yeah. I mean, there's some some charm. Charm. That's exactly the word. I was gonna say cute, but the word is charm. There's some 1960s charm to the movie, but the movie's just not very good. Yeah, and I think you know part of it is we were talking about when when it came out, and just like 1960 is a long time ago. This movie came out closer to like the jazz singer than it did to the remake. You know what I mean? This movie predates mm. Doctor No, the first Bond movie. Good movie. But I mean, this this is a this is a pretty old movie. I think like it's sort of more akin to, you know, old, like post-war, you know, war movies, um, than it is to like anything that came later. And we were talking about how like much change in in movie making in America came during the '60s and '70s. And this just predates all that. And, like, it really is, like, very dated in its style. You know, it sort of has, you know, it's got that charm to it. It's got, you know, stars in fancy clothes and fancy settings. uh, And that's all fun. But, like, in terms of, like, the style of filmmaking and, like, the way that the story is told, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's dated. And I think Soderbergh was right to identify that, you know, that charm and that style, that that's something that, that needs to be done in, in the remake, but that along with that, you can make it a more modern type of storytelling. And it's not even necessarily making it more modern. It's just making it a better story. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. To that end, if you have not seen the 2001 version I mean, what are you doing? That's a great movie. <laughs> Go watch Ocean's Eleven. It was. It's interesting because, you know, we're talking about Soderbergh and, like, what he wanted to do, and 
I was sort of looking up what they all thought about the original movie, and it seems what like Soderbergh thought about what the Soderbergh movie? thought, what Clooney thought. Mm. It seems like they all liked the idea of the movie, but then acknowledged that it's a terrible movie. Like I think Julia Roberts said she never finished it. She like fell asleep twice during the movie. Understandably. Uh, yeah. I mean, we watched it in what two parts? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, it feels longer than it is, I think. George Clooney said that, like, I think I think he said something like, oh, everybody says this is their favorite movie. And my response is, like, have you actually watched it? Uh, with the implication being, you know, I think that people like the idea of it more than they do. And I think Soderbergh said, like, we, you know, I think his idea was that they were more inspired by aspects of the movie than wanting to make a direct uh direct remake that obviously it was a flawed movie but that being said you know i think it's interesting because they take the idea you know the basic one one sentence the log line his crew of 11 thieves like make a plan to rob several las vegas casinos and they do that but then everything else about it is totally different and then at the same time like, there will be, like, a few little things. Like, I, I wrote down, like, all these little things that I thought were, you know, either references uh, that they had intentionally put in there or just, like, little things that they thought it would be funny. And, I mean, you mentioned, like, Angie Dickinson being in the remake, right? So right. Angie Dickinson and Henry Silva, who's one of the one mm-hmm. of the 11, they show up at the, the boxing match, you know? Um, and it's, like... A one-second shot. And yeah, there's I a ton of cameos at the boxing match, so splicing oh, really? them in there from the movie. Yeah, you've or? got um, who are the the circus people? Um, Siegfried and Roy. They're also at the boxing match. Oh, yeah. okay, yeah, but not from not from the original. Oh, right, no, not from the original. Yeah, no, just those but two. like just like a lot of things, you know. I wrote down there's like twelve things, like you know, uh, the offer to get the money back that Cesar Romero does, and then. George Clooney does. I did. I got so excited when George Clooney said that. He's like, I can get you the money. I know a guy. If you just give me 72 hours or whatever. And he's playing the role that yeah. Cesar Romero yeah. had. And Cesar Romero was such a great role that obviously was removed from the 2001 version. So having that nod to it. Yeah. You know, that was one of the few things, having seen the 1960 version now, where I'm like, oh, that's such a fun thing that they included. It's more than just yeah, what yeah. it is. But there was, like, a lot of that. I think it's it's almost like an acknowledgement of, like, this wasn't a good movie, but, like, if you really love that movie, we're going to throw you some bones. And, like, you know, the plot itself, like, how they did the blackout. Even though, what did they do? They blew up, like, a telephone line? Yeah, they or like had... A, like, that, an electric line? That same Richard Conte's Bergdorf character linked all of their electricity to the same one tower so when he blew it yeah. they all lost there and then you know in the in the remake they use the pinch which they steal from caltech or whatever yeah. um i thought like you know we there's the the one scene where they go to the strip club and they they're recruiting this guy and they're like oh i you know i have this is in the 1960s this is in the 1960 version club. and they ask him about his wife and they're like he's like oh she, she's coming on stage right now and then in the remake, you know, we have the scene where Brad Pitt goes to the strip club and he uh, he's talking to one of the strippers and he's like, How's you know, your mom? He, he, <laughs> on his way out, he says, you know, say hi to your mom for me. And she oh, goes, right. say it yourself. She's on stage in five yeah, minutes. That's what it says. And he just walks away. <laughs> um, but like, you know, the, uh, when uh, 
Saul, the uh, he's I guess Carl Reiner. Um, he's sort of the older guy in the crew. When he gets sick, that's sort of like a callback to. Oh yeah, and I, I actually had that. Like I remember the first time I saw the movie, I thought he had died. You know? mm-hmm. Now, of course, I've seen it so many times, I know that it's a ruse, it's part of their right. whole infiltration, but, yeah, definitely a nod to the fact that the Tony Bergdorf character did die in the yeah. 1960s version. and the fact that the guy at the table asked him if he's got a weak stomach, which is a whole thing between Cesar Romero and, uh, oh, yeah. and the other character. You're right. Um, there was, like, one scene where they're just, like, rolling these... In the in the remake, they're rolling these pucks with like gas canisters, and they do something with oh, pucks yeah. in the in the older version. But it's just like a very similar shot. Uh, you know, it's kind of a throwaway thing. Yeah, I mean, th- there's a few others. There is one character who who says, you know, the odds are always with the house when Danny's giving the the um, the plan in the 1960 version, and then of course we have George Clooney's, you know, the house always wins speech to Brad Pitt when he's sort of justifying what they're doing. I don't. Th- I got the impression, you know, Soderbergh probably doesn't like the 1960 movie, but it's sort of like I recognize that it's not a good movie, but people might like it and might have like an attachment to it for whatever reason. So I'm gonna throw them a bone. Well, I've got a question for you then. Do you feel that you have? I mean, already knowing that you love the 2001 version, I love the 2001 version. Do you feel like you have a deeper appreciation for it? now that you've seen the 1960 version. I think it's cool that they included stuff like that. Because it's weird, because it's almost like, to me, it's like the 1960 version is referencing the 2001 version, you know? Because, like, that's the order that I watched them in. (laughs) It's like, oh, that's a callback to this better movie. (laughs) And it's actually the reverse. You know, I don't know. It, It doesn't make me appreciate the 1960 version more. I don't even know if it makes me appreciate the 2001 version more, but I I respect that Soderbergh and, you know, the whole production team wanted to do that. And even though they don't like the movie, they were like, we have to treat it with some respect. You know what I mean? And like in, in hearing them talk about it, except for what Clooney said, I think mostly they're sort of talking around the fact that it's a bad movie rather Mm -hmm. than actually talking shit about it. We're doing a, a modern and yeah. better version of it, right? Yeah, I would agree. I don't know if it necessarily gave me a deeper appreciation, but definitely this time around watching the 2001 version, it was fun to get to watch that movie again with sort of a different context in mind. Of yeah. How is this different from this 1960 version? I yeah, because now. honestly, like, if you had asked me to guess, I would have thought that the 1960 version was way closer, you know, that, that, that it was more of a direct remake in oh yeah, that the plot would like be the same, you and, know, and not just a bunch of army buddies. Yeah, and, and we started watching 1960, and like for the first hour, it's literally just like the recruiting scenes. Oh, like, it was. Just... I would be careful calling it recruiting scenes because you and I love a good recruitment. Ocean's Eleven 2001 does a great recruitment. Mm-hmm. Seven Samurai, one of our favorite movies. Great recruitment. Yeah. Ocean's Eleven 1960. I can't even call that recruitment. It's just like. Here's a new guy. Here's a new guy. Like, Danny Ocean wasn't even in most of those scenes. They'd be talking about Danny Ocean. Yeah. But, like, it was it was just a bunch of random stuff <laughs> happening, and none of them introducing, like, this is what I can contribute. Right. Or whatnot. Like, so, 
yeah, it's a long, as David's saying, it's like a long part of the movie dedicated to, I guess, introducing us to the characters, but the only one who had what I would call a recruitment scene was the, um, the, like, cowboy guy at the very end. That was funny. Oh, yeah, I totally forgot about him. He just shows up drunk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, to where they're plotting, mm-hmm. and, like... That's pretty much it. Like, what does he even contribute to the team? Nothing. None of them contribute anything, David. They all just decided to work at the casinos, and by doing so, they figured out where the back room was, they circled it with this glow-in-the-dark pen, yeah, yeah. and then they walked back there, yeah. <laughs> and when the power was cut. Yeah. Oh, it's silly. No, uh, yeah, I think it's, uh... It's not a very good movie. I think it might be, like, for people of a certain generation, it might be, like, a well-known movie, like, a kind of a cultural touchstone. Mm. Um, and so I think, like, that it's po- it's possible that, like, so many people have seen it that even if it's not good, including references, is something that's going to, like, yeah. trigger positive associations for people of a certain generation. Yeah, I can see without, like, YouTube or MTV being like, this is where I get to see Dean Martin sing, you know? Like, of course, yeah. yeah. I mean, there were... That you see a lot of Dean Martin singing. Weirdly, Sinatra never has a music musical yeah, number in this movie. It. But Dean Martin was great. I enjoyed watching Dean Martin him sing. sings like three or four times in this yeah. movie, right? Because mm-hmm. he's just singing by himself when when uh, Danny's wife shows up. Yeah, and then he gets a... I guess he gets a job at the casino singing, and that was his contribution to the heist. <laughs> How lucky can one guy be? I kissed her and she kissed me Like the fellow once said Ain't that a kick in the head The room was completely black I hugged her and she hugged back Like the sailor said Quote, ain't that a hole in the boat Alright, so... Well, before, just the one last thing I thought, like, in terms of other references Outside of Ocean's Eleven Oh, okay I thought, I mean, the the whole trash plot, they did. That's what they do in Logan Lucky. I had the same thought. Yes, and that's also Soderbergh, right? Yeah, great yeah. movie. Logan Lucky's so funny. Not as good as Ocean's Eleven, I think. Very different vibe from Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, yeah. but also I think a good movie, and you know, clearly made by a guy who has seen the 1960 version of yes. Ocean's Eleven. And, uh, yeah, at the end of that movie, they do a heist at, like, a NASCAR track or whatever, and they throw the money in, um, in the garbage, and it ends up in a landfill, and they go get it later, right? Yeah. And that's the whole Great plot. nod to what Sammy Davis Jr. did in the 1960 version. Yeah. Yeah. And then, this is a wild card, but, like, I thought that Cesar Romero, like, the scene where the casino heads are, mm-hmm. uh, you know, talking, and then they're sort of like, we're gonna bring in Cesar Romero, um... I got, like, strong, like, The Dark Knight. Do you know in, in the scene when all the mob bosses are getting together? you talking about and then the Joker shows up? And the Joker shows oh, up? The Joker, who is Cesar Romero. Right, who Cesar Romero played oh. in, in the, the Batman TV show in the 60s, not at the yeah. time. Obviously, but... I'm not saying that Cesar Romero played the Joker in The Dark Knight. Right, right. <laughs> but the Joker comes in, and, like, he does the same thing where yeah. they're, like, out of desperation, they're and like, they're we need that this guy to get the money back. Yeah. And his negotiation style... How much you want? Uh, half. <laughs> and it's the same thing in uh, in Ocean's Eleven, when they're, they're like, 
so what do you want for this favor? And he says, 30%. And he says I want... I want a third, but I'll let you negotiate me down to 30%, which is, like, <laughs> yeah. not, yeah, but, like, the way he says it, like, he says it with such confidence that they're, they know that it's, that it's over, you know what I mean, that it's not a negotiation. Yeah. And then he goes and he tells uh, the crew, I only wish I was in on it with you. How I envy you your youth. You're not going to get any younger hanging around here. What do you want? If you guys had been pros, I'd have put you out of business. But new talent needs encouraging. I want half. Half of what? <laughs> you tell me. You got the money. But like, anyway, I I don't know if I don't know if like Christopher Nolan or Heath Ledger specifically were thinking about that. But like, I got like just that whole scene, the way it played out was very yeah. similar, you know. And just you know, you have all these bosses who are kind of like they represent different you know, mm -hmm. th they do the same thing, but they're essentially rivals, and they come together because they're all getting screwed over, mm -hmm. and just out of desperation, they they turn things over to this other guy. Right? I mean, I can't believe... Who then turns around and screws them over anyway. Right. I, ugh, I can't believe that, that that was what Christopher Nolan was thinking in The Dark Knight, but I fucking love everything you just put together there because yeah i mean i was so excited to see caesar romero i haven't seen him portray the joker but just being a fan of batman i'm so happy to get this opportunity to see the first joker ever on screen mm -hmm. in in ocean's love and so i was excited to see caesar romero in this movie and so that's such a fun connection to be like he has this scene that that Heath Ledger's Joker gets, and that's oh, I like that, David. Yeah, I I have no idea whether that's just like going way too far, but you know, <laughs> I I did I got those vibes, you know, and I also haven't seen Cesar Romero in anything. I only knew him as a kid because of the Simpsons joke where. Who are you? The spirit of Cesar Chavez. Why do you look like Cesar Romero? Because you don't know what Cesar Chavez looks like. And that's all I knew about him for, like, the longest time. And obviously he does play the Joker, you know, and that's his, probably his most mm -hmm. famous role, I'm sure. Um, but I've never seen the old Batman TV show or the movie. So, yeah. I, you know, this is, like, this was my introduction to him. And I thought, like, he stole most of the movie. Yeah, we should go back and watch him play the Joker. Because we've been, comp like, for a movie that we did not like, we've only had good things to say about him, so. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, and he's really, you know, maybe we're playing a up a little too much because he's not in most of the movie he's in one scene in the first half of the movie mm -hmm. and then in the last 20 minutes he becomes the antagonist so he's he's in there a lot but yeah other than that like he's not he's yeah not you gotta character. survive the first hour of the movie to, to get to anything yeah yeah well that was just my wild card is this a reference or do i just love the dark knight right. way too much um yeah so david which which movie do you think is better <laughs> In many ways, the work of a critic is easy. We risk very little, yet enjoy a position over those who offer up their work and their selves to our judgment. Well, I think it's <laughs> obvious that the 2001 version is better. I think it's, yeah. it's, it's just a more coherent, complete movie in, in every way. And, you know, having that subplot, having... Uh, more interesting members of the Eleven, having a villain, uh, and having resolution of, of a lot of these subplots 
that already would make it better. But it happens to also be like a very good movie with like great performances from Clooney, from Pitt, from Julia Roberts, from Andy Garcia, uh, Matt Damon. Everybody in in the movie is great, uh, and it's it's like a really fun. It's like a beautiful movie. Like yeah, it is beautiful. Like I feel like Soderbergh is kind of known. I wouldn't say style over substance, but certainly like style is part of his brand. Um, you know the way that things look and and the way that that scenes are shot and it's it's very you know almost extravagant it's very like visually loud at times but like also stylish mm-hmm. uh you know he's well known for that but i don't know everything in the movie it just it just really works very well um and in the 1960 version i think for someone who has no relationship to the rat pack to sinatra or sammy davis jr or anything like that that I think that takes that takes like the whole conceit of the movie away, and you know if you're watching it in 1960 and you love the Rat Pack, you can probably overlook a lot of these flaws. But for people like us, you know, yeah, it's hard to overlook, right? I think the only thing I would add, I feel like we've said a lot that you know Sinatra's character in particular, but all the members of the Eleven from 1960 don't offer a lot to like about them. So just to to add some clarity that the way he talks to and treats women is yeah. not great. Like, one thing I really didn't like that they did when they're stealing the money, there's guards in the back room where the safe is, and they make them blow out the candles so that they don't see their faces, and they force them to sing Old Dang Sign, and the way that they're, like, saying it, it's very like, now sing, you know? And it's like, you know, you have this scene in 2001 where Bernie Mac really, like, crushes this guy's hand and is very intimidating but you don't get the same sort of like well oh, i don't like these people sort yeah of like it's it's vibe. less i think less mean-spirited yeah o- only a little bit i don't think that was really the intention of those scenes i think like it they just didn't really make an effort to avoid that you know yeah i you know i think the plot wasn't very well thought out like didn't you say that it was like a gas station attendant told somebody who knew Sinatra, and that's how the plot. Yeah, the at movie least according to Wikipedia, that's that's we. <laughs> but we have two thousand one's version to thank. Right, know? but I think like you know they obviously were like, okay, we've got the kernel of a great idea here. Mm-hmm. Let's actually write a good movie. Whereas I think in nineteen sixty they yeah. were just like, we've got the kernel of an idea, and we've got Frank Sinatra. Let's just do this, you know. God, and if only they'd had George Clooney, because Frank Sinatra's just. He was just so afraid to show a sensitive side, I felt like. And it just, that makes him... Well, I don't even think it was his fault. I think there was no real opportunity because there was no, there was no plot that, for him to engage with, you know? And maybe, like, maybe the movie star thing at the time was just, like, just be cool on screen and, Mm -hmm. like, it doesn't, nothing else matters. Yeah. So maybe, like, that was his intention, too. But And I guess the definition of cool has changed because there's some things he's doing where it's like, hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're saying, like, the way they talk about women and stuff. I'm the one that's going into politics. What's going to be your platform, Big Sam? Repeal the 14th and the 20th Amendment, take the vote away from the women, and make slaves out of them. It's supposed to be, like, kind of, like, oh, these guys are, like, 
a little bad, but like a little fun, you know? I don't like it was just so weird. I gotta say, I didn't. I missed that line. Wow. Oh, you didn't. Yeah. You didn't see that? It was. You like, know, I would have brought it up if I heard it. So. It was the scene in front of the pool table when you have the four members of the Rat Pack. Yeah, standing and they were together. All, all hanging out. Okay. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's weird because I feel like when there are women in the movie, they like kind of hold their own, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and except and, for when those ladies needed to go take their nap, <laughs> right? I, yeah, the first scene of the movie, I forgot about that. There's mm-hmm. there's like a woman giving Dean Martin a massage or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and then and just, then they just they get dismissed. Yeah. But like when Angie Dickinson shows up, you know, I feel like she kind of gives Danny what oh, for. Absolutely. And um and then the the woman that he's had had this affair or this one night stand with, she also you know clearly like. They're not on the same page. Yeah. But, like, I don't know. I thought she also kind of told him what was up, and those scenes kind of yeah. happened back to back, where it was like, you're just, That's like, right. you're just kind of a yeah. dick in general, and, like, you're just doing whatever you want, and, like, mm-hmm. you know. So, I, it, it, but then, like, when they're, when it's just the man folk, they're like, ha-ha, the women are our slaves, <laughs> which is, it, it was, yeah. it was very off-putting, I thought. Well, let me, okay, so just having given more context to not like in 1960, I will agree with you that I love the 2001 version. What can I tell you, kid? You're right. When you're right, you're right. You're right. And just something that I feel like it doesn't feel like it needs to be said because this this movie is so famous and, like, already well-respected. I mean, it was the birth of a whole franchise. You know, say what you will about the franchise, but this movie is so good. Mm -hmm. Um, Just the heist itself. Is just so oh, yeah. beautifully constructed, and the fact that they they give you information, they come up with such good ways with the dialogue to make sure it's clear to you, yeah. like things being repeated and summarized. But they also give it to you piecemeal, like you get the original sort of setup of how it's gonna work. Um, some road bumps happen, but you never sort of lose it. And then there's the twist at the end that um, Terry Benedict's been looking at a fake, you know, video of what's going on in his vault, whereas the SWAT team that he thinks just went in was actually... Yeah. It's just... it's. No, I'm glad you mentioned it that. It explains it to you so well, but it's so complex and fun to, like, yeah. follow. Yeah, the last, you know, 45 minutes or so is them actually pulling off the heist. And we kind of mentioned how simplistic the heist in 1960 yeah, so is. Stupid. Without, Can I get into the back room? <laughs> without giving due credit to the 2001 version, where I, I I remember seeing it in theaters, and I think they like they had lost the last movie reel, and so like you're watching the movie, and then literally as the twist is like being revealed, the screen just like went blank. And it was just like that can't be the end of the movie. <laughs> like I need to know like what happened. And oh, I think what a like experience. yeah, it was a very strange experience. But it like literally, it's when he picks up the phone and he goes nine one one emergency response for the second time, and uh, you realize right. like that was part of the thing uh-huh. because that's when they send the SWAT team. That's really just Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. Um, then the screen just went blank, and it's like I need to know what happened. You know, like you just revealed that twist, but like. I want to see all of this, you know, and like the way that they, the way that it does play out, um, yeah, it's like, it just, every, like there's, there's twists and then there's like a reverse twist and then it's like, 
oh, a setback or something like that. Yeah. But then, like, that's revealed that it's fine, and then it's just like a roller coaster ride, and it's mm-hmm. it's just really great, and I think visually, you really, it's it's just really easy to follow. You yeah. know, it's not it's not visually complex or anything like that. It really just takes place in a couple different mm-hmm. places. Um, and I think earlier you said Ocean's Eleven is better than Logan Lucky, um, yeah. by the same director, and I think it does, it. Ocean's Eleven helps you follow the heist, mm-hmm. I think, better than Logan Lucky does. That is that is what I would say. Yeah, I've seen Logan Lucky, like, like, four or five times now, and I still don't know what the, like, the lady at the bank with the cockroach is. I don't really understand that part. It, it's it's not as clear as yeah. Ocean's Eleven. I mean, it's just, it's such a feat of movie making that they, that they made it what it is. And, I mean, I, I do, we, we talked about Matt Damon being great, but, like, in the middle of the heist... He has a, a huge role to play where he shows up and he's supposed to be uh, uh, from the Nevada Gaming Commission and investigating Bernie Mac's character who is working at the casino mm-hmm. but is actually, you know, in reality an ex-felon. So he shows up under the pretense of, like, I'm revealing that he's an ex-felon and you need to fire him. But while he's doing that, he's stealing the code to the vault. But he's sort of playing this other character and... It's just, like, it's so fun to, like, watch him, like, walk around in, like, the back hallways of the casino um, before he meets up with Clooney and they, they go rob the vault. But, like, again, like, that's something that could have been, like, confusing. Oh, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. like, where where are people? Why is he here? Because it wasn't really explained in advance. Mm-hmm. And um, you see him do a couple lifts ahead of time, so you know he has that skill. Right. And the way they shoot him bumping into Terry Benedict you see it is the same like, motion that you've seen before, so yeah. Yeah. Um, But, like, at no point is it really confusing what's happening, even though you don't know the whole plan until it gets revealed at the very end. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that's doing that with 11 characters. And, like you said, uh, with Carl Reiner's character, where you think he actually collapses from a heart attack (laughs) or something, you just, like, while you're watching this for the first time, you don't know what's going on. But it's just, it's so, the fact that it's so easy to follow... I think it's really a testament to, like, how well thought out it was. Mm-hmm. And that every character matters. And, yeah. yeah, every character really does matter. Yeah. All right, so our final question is, if we were to recreate Ocean's Eleven, what, how would you redo it? What would you change? I've got the most scathingly brilliant idea. I don't know, because they keep remaking it, and it's like... And it's not getting better. It's not getting better, <laughs> like... I don't know, this might be the rare case where, like, Ocean's Eleven is close to being a perfect movie. Like, I don't think the sequels really added anything. It reminded me a lot of, like, Pirates of the Caribbean. Pirates. Where you have this first movie where everything is so wild and so, like, magical. Everything in the universe of this movie is a possibility, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And then the sequels just, like, constrict those possibilities down further and further and further until it's, like, not magical anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah. And that's sort of what happened with Ocean's 12 and Ocean's 13. And Ocean's 8. I tried to watch Ocean's 13, like, a year or so ago, and I don't even think I ever finished Ocean's 13. And I love Al Pacino, and he's the villain in that movie. Mm. I couldn't finish it. Like, I had, I have, I, even now I have no idea, like, what that movie's about, you know? Um, it, it's just, it's just not as good, and I think they, they killed some of the magic, but, like, that's, again, just goes to show that, like, Ocean's Eleven 
really captured that magic and it's just a really good movie and then yeah Ocean's 8 I love Sandra Bullock but like Mm-hmm. What did that movie really offer? Plus, that movie, when you think about the twist for like one second, it doesn't work at all, right? Because wasn't Anne Hathaway the person that they were stealing from? And then it turns out that she was in on it too? And it's like, so you just robbed... Oh, you were just like leaving information out from the team that could have helped them? Or... I think it was I like, it doesn't movie. even really it doesn't even make sense, you mm-hmm. know? It's like movies now, I think, are obsessed with, like, making twists that you can't see coming more so than, like, yeah, I having exactly a twist that makes sense. Mean. Yeah. But I gotta love that, you know, it helped get Aquafina's career started. You know I like her. Okay, if I were to remake Ocean's Eleven, I mean, I think I gotta agree with you that you can't really top the 2001 version. And you certainly you... can't replace George Clooney. Right. And if you think of, like, even um, Logan Lucky as, like, a pseudo- you know, kind of a spiritual success. Yeah, and it's so good, but it's, it's still so not It's so good, but it's not as good. Yeah. Like, it's got Channing Tatum and Daniel Craig as, uh, and Adam mm-hmm. Driver, all of whom are great in the movie. Yeah. And it's just still not as good. But what if they were to remake it, set in the 60s, focus on comedy rather than on twists and heist, and just, like, a fun romp? Like, do that whole parody of the 60s thing that I was talking about. Like, I've seen that 60s style really only done as, like, you know, BoJack Horseman parodies or whatever. And just, yeah, lean into the the comedy of it. Make the heist easy because they just need to go to the back door. Like, I think... I think it could be funny. Like, remake the 1960 version. Exactly, yeah. With the punchline at the end. That they don't even get the money. So, like, keep... This Caesar Romero character. Oh yeah. And keep like the the B plot and the C plot of, uh, you know, the guy with the son that he wants to give the money to. That maybe would be a little too much um, pathos for for what I'm like looking for. But yeah, do a better getting the gang together part of it. Like make the characters interesting and compelling. But but isn't yeah. that what they did in the Soderbergh version though? I mean. I feel like they threw everything out that didn't work and just did stuff that worked. Yeah, but they they took away the fact that they don't get the money, right? I think that cremation joke, you know, that that has potential. The yes, the whole Cesar Romero bit of trying to catch them. Like if if you had a shorter getting the gang together, you know, it's the sixties, like I'm saying, literally said it in the sixties. So all you have to do is get into the back room to get into the safe. You know, and then you've thrown it into the dump. And then just, like, a comedy of errors of, like, you know, bumbling their way through this heist that is actually super basic because you've only got the technological capacity of the 1960s to be protecting the casino's money. You're not with me on this? You don't think it's prime for a comedy? It's pretty silly. Yeah. Would you have Mrs. Ocean be more of a character? Or, like, finish out her storyline, at least? Or just cut her entirely from the movie. <laughs> no, you gotta have Mrs. Ocean. You gotta have Mrs. Ocean. You would, she would need to be another another powerhouse. And they've had good luck with their, their Mrs. Oceans in uh, all the Ocean Elevens so far. Yeah. But, well, you know. Who, who would be Danny? You really can't jo- top George Clooney for, for being suave, so it'd have to be someone funny. I mean, you could have Channing. Yeah, he was, he was great in... Uh, Logan Lucky. Yeah, I feel like he could be, 
like charming, suave, but also goofy, you know? Yeah, actually, that's a great call. Yeah. Too bad I mean, he was already in. I mean, he wasn't really in Ocean's Eleven, but yeah, the spiritual successor, as he said. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if I buy it. That's all right. I think it's a pretty weak premise, but, you know, I think there are comedic parts of the 1960 version that were dropped for the 2001 version. Mostly just the 60s era style and the joke at the end. That I wonder if there's anything there to go in a different direction with it. Yeah. Do you think you have a director in mind that would be able to do this? Who are we loving as comedy directors nowadays? Well, nobody that we haven't assigned to another movie, I think. Oh, are you thinking YTT? No, I don't know. I don't know. I wasn't thinking anybody. Yeah. I'm just the gas station attendant just spouting this out and someone's gonna run with it, David. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I it's just, it's hard when it's such like a, it's such like a, a good movie. It's like, it's, I mean, of, of all the movies that I've seen many, many times, mm-hmm. this is, I've seen this movie, like... You think you've seen it more than Pirates? No, I mean, Pirates... I've seen a lot of times, yeah, me too. but it's it's probably on that level, you know, because mm-hmm. this I think it's more of like a, you know, my parents love this movie, mm-hmm. like I think older people love this movie. That's true. It, you know, it George Clooney, George Clooney sure. is sort of a movie star of a different generation. I think mm-hmm. he's more of our parents' generation, um, even though you know he's obviously great. But I couldn't imagine anyone our age not having seen Ocean's Eleven. You know. Yeah. So. Yeah. I wonder if you could find someone who, like, really hates Ocean's Eleven. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can find haters. But, like, anything. could someone, like, coherently hate that movie? No. I think you could coherently <laughs> hate the first Pirates movie. Sure, yeah. Well, Pirates, yeah, because it's too much in its genre, you know? Too much in its silly world. Yeah. So if you're not if you're not open to that, you're not going to like it. Yeah, I, it, it's hard to imagine someone that would just be like, no, fuck this Ocean's Eleven movie. Yeah. And, like, honestly, if you if you don't have a connection to the 1960 version, I really can't imagine liking that movie better. Like, if you, if you oh, haven't God, already seen no. it, you know? Nobody would like that movie better. Well, if you were, like, ten years old when it came out, and you're like, oh, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen, and then, you know, you're 70 or whatever when the remake comes out, and it's like, this isn't as cool. I guess you would be 50, right? I, I think that would be impossible. Yeah. I would love to hear Angie Dickinson's thoughts, since she was technically in both. Yeah, I wonder, like, for people who were involved in the 1960 version, have any of them admitted that it wasn't good? I'm sure they have. Ooh, we should look that up later. Yeah. <sighs> all right, well, I think that's all we have to say on Ocean's Eleven. This was a pretty easy decision here. Yeah. Yeah, I think 2001 version. Yeah, I mean, in terms of a recommendation, I think, like, you should, if you, who, like, who wouldn't have seen this movie already? But you should obviously go see it, right? Yeah. and matter of fact, everybody just go watch it again, because it's a great movie. Yeah, it is. It's it's great. And I think uh, you don't necessarily need to watch the 1960 version, even for context. I think just skip it. Yeah, that's why you got two for one. We already told you all you need to know. Yeah. Well, that's pretty much all we got. All right, thanks for tuning in.